And now, Truth of Lies, Episode 7, Blood Money. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is, welcome to Truth of Lies. My name is Tony Horn. I'm a ghostwriter and podcaster in Lancashire, England, in East Bolden, the star of the show, Julie Phillips. So last time, it was 2005 in Sierra Leone, just before we fast forward to 2008, which in the timeline of events looks like the most significant after the trip to Sierra Leone. But that, of course, undermines every single individual day in which the struggle continues. And that struggle can be emotional, coping with the grief that never goes away. And, of course, it can be a struggle of administration. When you landed back from Sierra Leone and right up to 2008, how was your life what do you remember that time autopilot or trying to crack on autopilot to be honest life was pretty shit i'll be honest it was just couldn't plan wasn't happy and it was just a kind of waiting game contact with solicitors and Barristers, solicitors, waiting for letters, waiting for documents. Yeah, that was that was what it was. My whole life revolved around that, pretty much. Anybody can Google what happens when Julie and the Ministry of Defence finally settled. Anybody cynical can say really hurtful things about sums of money. When you're in that situation, I can tell you this, that no sum of money equate to that loss. You'd agree with me, wouldn't you, Julie, if I said one penny or one million pounds are the same Currency, they both are meaningless, and it's the fight to, in some cases, for people, clear someone's name, but in this case, to achieve accountability that is all that matters. Just on that point, on the money, a penny, a million pounds, they're the same worthless value, aren't they? To me, I personally couldn't give a shit about money. <laughs> That's putting it. That's putting it bluntly. It was never about that. And I know people probably who are listening disagree. Some will agree, but if you've never been in that situation, for me, it was about getting the truth and finding out about finding out the truth. Considering that I was lied to and misled so many times, I knew in my heart, in my head that there was negligence 100% so it was never about the money it was never about you know there's a saying that money can never buy happiness it can open doors for you give you opportunities in life 
doesn't matter how much money you've got if you're not truly happy in yourself then no amount of money is ever going to make you happy you think oh i can buy this i can do this i can go here i can have all this but if you haven't got true true friends and true family and people who you 100% 110% trust you're never ever going to be happy it just doesn't to me i called it blood money i don't really like talking about it it was blood money and if that's what it is the cost of a life the cost of michael's life then i would rather have walked away without anything at all and 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 i'd rather have had an a letter of an apology which coming up nearly 22 year i still haven't had you know you've said so much there you can buy a bigger house julie but a bigger house is a bigger empty house mm -hmm. and when you said you'd rather have a letter of apology my my marketing brain flashed back to those mastercard adverts i believe paint a picture of luxury against a picture of emotion and it the strap line i think was priceless julie and i have never really spoken about this so i of course have as you will do google i've googled let me put it in percentages so if what i'm reading what julie was offered as an initial payout which was the standard for the widow of a soldier killed in action and a widow's pension actually was an eighth of what finally came out of the ministry of defense purse strings i take my information from the article i'm looking at is that roughly what we're talking about yeah i mean it's the size that i'm interested in the the movement from the first position to the final position rather than the numbers the first offer it didn't go to court the first offer they offered me was i think it was, it was less than a hundred thousand i know that and when my barrister told them to go away and stop playing silly games that what we were having a meeting in this conference room between me miss lister and barrister the Army Solicitor and Royalson Alliance, who are the insurers for the Ministry of Defence. And the first offer, he just, Miss Barrister just laughed. And Royalson Alliance turned around and said, well, she can get a job, can't she? Wow. Every episode you hit me with a wow. And I wish now that I have one regret. The only regret I do have is that I didn't take them to court. I wish I hadn't agreed that day. My solicitor and barrister wanted to agree, and I think that because they wanted the money, and that's the truth. And it, it took them obviously what eight and a half years, eight years. The solicitors and barristers got a lot more money than me. Believe me, they got a lot more money. They didn't want to go to court. They didn't want to go to court. They didn't want to. I wish I had. I wish I'd I took them to court. So, Julie, when you say they, 
you mean the Ministry of Defence or the, your barristers? My barristers, my barrister and solicitor didn't want to court to court. They advised me to settle out a court. Well, I, I, might, I might not have got enough. It would prolong, blah, blah. And you know what? If truth, hand on heart, I'd had enough. I'd had enough. The advice I've always been given, having had the odd litigation over the years is that a good lawyer's job is to keep stuff out of court but of course it's in their interest often to put it in there um then they'll make more money now all of that overlooks what i don't think you even need to say to me and that is whilst you might have got even more money from going to court the purpose of going to court is accountability isn't it it's to mm -hmm. hear those people say well if you're lucky i'm sorry second best we messed up and if you recall in our last episode just before julie flies to sierra leone a reporter is very interested in this story and it's only at that point that the Ministry of Defence admitted 50% negligence. I'm sure you recall that by the time there's a settlement, the curious figure of 87.5% yeah. is cited as negligence. I mean, forgive me, I'm no maths professor, I'm no litigator, I'm no insurance clerk, but how on earth do you conclude that there's a wayward figure of not even 12, but 12 and a half percent in which they are not negligent? Can you explain this utter bull of a figure? Because they'll never accept 100%. They never have. Never, ever. And they never will. So that was the closest that I was going to get. So, and so, yeah, that's my regret. I wish I'd took them to court. I'd, I, I, I regret it every day. And it's, I think because I wanted to prove that, right, I'm in court with you now, and you will have to admit to me and everybody else in the court and the judge what you've done accept the liability and accept the negligence and i never got that but i'd had enough i'd literally had enough and i felt as if i was fighting the case yeah my solicitors and barristers did a good job but i was the one who was ringing the mod hounding them like like doing everything and I think it gets to a point where you've got to say enough is enough. All that, that was my life for eight and a half. It was, it was my full-time job and I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I'd, I'd had enough. Well, you could have got a job to go with your full-time job there, couldn't you? Well, yeah, but I had Holly as well, didn't I? So that was my full-time <laughs> job. I've, this is not an isolated account to me where i've heard that possessed and driven individuals like julie and myself have 
kept the lawyers on track, so to speak. I think it's very clear that the Ministry of Defence, at all costs, would avoid, never mind blood money, the bloodbath that would be litigation. Even if people had never heard of this story, this would have been national, possibly international news if it had played out in the High Court. Even though lawyers and barristers, of course, represent you, suspect there may have been a conversation at some point, which is, let's draw a line to this. We don't, we don't need this playing out in public. Do you have any breakdown of that percent negligence? And do you have any breakdown of the 37.5% negligence that has been added since before the trip to Sierra Leone. What are the parameters that have taken them from 50% to 87.5%? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I haven't got a clue. It did emerge, and correct me if I have this slightly wrong, but Adam, one of the drivers, did reveal something which hadn't been part of the previous dialogue on, on this. Oh, that the before the just before the accident. About I don't even know whether it was an hour before he said that driving on the way back from the jungle, there was a loud bang from underneath the vehicle. At this time, Michael was driving because they were swapping, and they stopped the vehicle and they got out and they were underneath the vehicle checking. I think by this time it must have been dark, and they couldn't couldn't find anything so they got back in the vehicle that's i think that's when they, they changed drivers adam was driving and they said well we'll get it sorted we'll get it looked at as soon as we get back to camp obviously they didn't get that chance did they i, I don't know what was wrong with the vehicle does it even matter something was wrong with the vehicle and that's what matters and when you have a you know most people are drivers when you have a loud bang under the vehicle you've either i don't know interfered with some debris gone over a speed bump too fast or the physical sound of a bang quashes those i think if i have a loud bang under my vehicle and decide cool. to carry on driving i'm driving very very gingerly and I suppose therein lies, maybe that's the 37.5% negligence. Um, the fact of the matter is that initially blame was pointed at lack of seatbelts, but as we exposed, I think, in a previous episode, a lack of seatbelts is only a consequence of other things that have been triggered along the way. We've got this loud bang now. That vehicle is in trouble before before the accident. Did you discover anything along the way, or did the solicitors, barristers, learn anything about the general condition of vehicles that our armed forces were driving in? Because if this is the state of one vehicle... Armed forces don't just ever order one vehicle, do they? They order 
at the same time several vehicles so there were probably several vehicles that had the same length of service and well i mean who would do an audit of everything that all british armed forces would were driving but it's the vehicle we've said many times in these episodes not being roadworthy that is is the reason for all this did you get any fresh insight I know I spoke to a few people about it. I don't know whether it was military police or SIB again, because it had been brought back to the UK and it was in, they said it was in compound, because I asked if I could view it, and they said, no, it's not possible, it's in compound, and there was nothing wrong with the Regal and blah, 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 and put it to my solicitor about going to have a look at it. I think even to get a, a, a different mechanic, I wasn't allowed. Well, that's quite interesting, really. I mean... What would you do if you were in charge in a scenario like that? Would you write the vehicle off in the country that this has happened and save yourself on the cost of getting it home? I'm assuming that vehicle has never been driven again. You probably don't know, but I think it's a fair assumption. Or would you get that vehicle back as it is a key it's the key piece of evidence, notwithstanding the surviving members of the unit that were in it. And anybody listening to your words describing that there would say, well, they put it under lock and key. There are secrets in that vehicle. Did you at any point obtain a maintenance record service record of that vehicle because that would strike me as one of the very first things the lawyers should have done especially if the vehicle is concealed and if i had known that the vehicle was back in the country and i were a lawyer i would be pushing that button very strongly i think they must have had documents i mean i got an absolute load of documents i mean you're talking a lot and it, it probably wasn't i, I can't remember I, I, that's the truth i can't remember i think there was things about the vehicle because i know the barrister questioned things at the inquest so there will have been but i think basically the negligence came down to the lack of training four in the vehicle not three they didn't have radios they didn't have mobile phones obviously the lead vehicle drove off and left them lack of equipment that was what it boiled down to yeah that lead vehicle leaving the convoy mm -hmm. i think it's poor form to try and attribute blame in that direction but that's clearly wrong it's most likely against procedure i mean if you're traveling in convoy that's self-explanatory you don't need anybody to spell that out to you and you would think in a place like this where you've come back from the jungle in a country that has is emerging out of a war what frankly is the point in not traveling in convoy without wishing to cast aspersions do you think that has been slightly overlooked do you think that's been buried in the detail and again if we were in court 
as you'd wished, we might well have played on that detail too. It doesn't stop what happened, mm -hmm. but it it might have aided the process after. We don't know. We don't know, you know, how long Mike. Well, I don't think we know how long Michael was alive for when the vehicle crashed. But there's one of the things that always comes out in court is the little detail, and that vehicle drove off and. You know, does it have a direct impact on any of this? Don't know, but it's naughty, isn't it? It's naughty at, at best. I mean, they did wrong. They weren't, you know, they, they broke the rules. At the end of the day, maybe Michael might not have survived. You know, it was possible 99%, 0.9% that he wasn't going to, he wouldn't have survived. But James could have. James could have survived. He was alive for several hours after the accident so if that lead vehicle had been there i mean going, going after the after the settlement etc i started getting odd messages on facebook messenger not all not all together i'd say i got one random message from somebody who said he was there just after the accident happened not just after but he was an army lad and he said he was one of the first on the scene. Well, you can imagine, I was like, oh, like I need to know. Like, you know, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I was there first on the scene, and 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 obviously, I saw Michael, and he was breathing, and and I was like, and obviously, the more questions I asked, and he was going into detail about like the accident and. Locals were trying to pinch stuff off the vehicle and blah, loads of stuff, and then he just disappeared. Truth of lies. Well, James, who did later die, is breathing for some time. Michael, some doubt. But last episode, we talked about social media and how different this might have been, let's just say, written up. I mean, the Daily Mail article, Julie, I'm looking at, describes you as an, a modern-day Aaron Brockovich. That's, my, that's me, yeah. And Eve, I'm sure Eve, the journalist, called me that as well. Well, mm. I'll take that one. <laughs> but... <laughs> Let's just reset the timeline. 2005, Julie goes to Sierra Leone. Facebook lands 2004. Compensation agreement 2008. By the end of the first decade of the noughties, social media is gathering speed. Re unregulated, a lot of it. And the legislation doesn't keep up with the pace with which social media is developing. You are able to communicate with people for the first time that have disappeared from your life or you might have been looking for for a long, long time. There's also a conscience which social media can bring and something that's been sitting on your shoulder for several years, chirping away at you, can come to life again because someone else might have wandered into your timeline. There are also, of course, as we know, you know, from the assassination of Kennedy, to Princess Diana, there are those fantasists that place themselves at the scene 
have a theory, push people off the scent, waste time, and slash people's emotions. So there's the good and bad of social media. But as settlement arrives for Julie, we're certainly now in a different era of transparency. So this person that wandered into your life disappeared from your life, and you're none none the wiser or none the better for the experience except the question mark in, in your mind. And and that none of that helps, does it? It doesn't help. You need clarity. Yeah. And may, maybe this person's a fantasist or maybe this person was there and maybe this person thinks, sugar, I've I've gone too far in there. I, I, I've let myself down there. I just need to back off. Um, which is for people that behave like that as an implication, of course, of the power and control that the people that hire them have over them. Whereas crusaders like yourself, it's the truth at all costs. And it doesn't matter who you rub up the wrong way in the process because the truth sets you free and the truth is all that counts. That is very interesting though. And you will have certainly seen and I know that you're aware through other groups that we again talked about in a previous episode that as the social media era unravels, there is a mixture of transparency and confusion and accountability that sits right alongside that era. Has anybody else spoken up to you? through these new channels that really you could have dealt with hearing from in 2002, 2005? I had had two messages off different people, not at the same time, who both were saying that they'd been there first on the scene, blah de blah and then nothing else, nothing else at all. And how do you view those messages now? Do you think they have credibility? Do you think that a conscience was awoken and then aborted? Or or what? I think after the first one, because I can remember when I was getting messages off this person, I did put on my Facebook page saying, does anybody know this guy? Because he was saying, oh, I knew Michael and... I was first at the scene, blah de blah. But I think the more I started asking questions, he just disappeared. So I don't think I believe. It's not gonna bring him back, is it? It's not gonna it's not gonna change anything. One thing I've learned in recent years, someone gave me some advice and that was whatever you say, however you act, you never know what people are going through in their own lives. When someone wanders into your life, they may be a fantasist or they may be genuine, but also you don't know what people are going through in their lives. And it, and we all know that there are unsolved crimes out there and there are people who have yet to speak. For anybody who has watched the Netflix documentary on Jill Dando, the BBC presenter who was gunned down on her own doorstep in Fulham in London at a house she didn't really go to much. It's an extraordinary set of circumstances that no definitive answer or explanation has ever been given for. 
So that means that someone or some ones is or are sitting on secrets. Now that's a brutal assassination, but you just don't know. You just do not know what is going on in people's lives that make them speak up at the moment they do or make them half speak up and then withdraw. And that none of that is any consolation or help. There is an elephant in the room here in our conversation, and that is the time we are talking about, not quite a decade, and three years after they'd admitted 50% negligence. For anybody who might find themselves in this unfortunate predicament of having to litigate against a huge body and remember what julie said right at the start you know you don't know what you're taking on this is a massive organization can you tell people why it took so long for an agreement to be reached and i don't think for one moment that's any lack of industry on behalf of your lawyers I do feel the Ministry of Defence would have been very happy dragging this out, but it's an incredible amount of time, you know, that at the time would have amounted to, what, a quarter or a fifth of your life? Mm -hmm. How? They made my life a misery. That's the truth. They made my life hell. Like, it dragged on, it dragged on, it dragged on. They just made things very difficult. Didn't accept liability. They weren't forthcoming with anything. And that's how it went. And it just went on and on and on and on. It got to the point where, what do you do? You can't go anywhere. You can't plan. You can't look ahead. You, you, you don't have a life. I wasn't happy. I can remember I look back now and my family walked on eggshells every time they were around me because I was like a crazy possessed woman that was probably going to explode at any minute. And I think they were worried about what they said and how they said it. And I don't think I was a very nice person to certain people looking back i just think the amount of stress that i was under it became my life my whole like my whole life and even after the settlement i think it took us about a good five or six years to actually think to breathe a sigh of relief and think right i can now try and start to move on and i think that's pretty sad like really sad you know what i mean because it just it took over everything nothing else mattered nothing else like i was just focused and that's all i had so i'm going to do something that i did in a previous episode because you belittle yourself and that is you know i wasn't a very nice person i think the way I see it is that you were a driven person. Only two things matter, Holly and accountability for Michael. 
And yeah, sometimes that might make you snappy. But say you're not a very nice person, even if you behave in a sharp way to those other people that are important to you in your life, is wrong because you are a nice person, because you are seeking justice. You're in pursuit of that justice. If people are not coming with you on that journey, then they're people maybe to leave behind. But I do understand. Yeah, because I think with me, become very, I've learned a lot. I've learned a hell of a lot. And I might not have the qualifications, you know, from school and stuff, but I'm very switched on. And I think I'm pretty intelligent and I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about myself. I became pretty hard faced and I had to deal with a lot. I don't regret what I did. I'm proud of what I did, but it, it made me a different person. And the waiting for phone calls and letters, it was, it was agonizing. And then you'd get a letter and it'd be, well, it was a letter, but there was nothing. You weren't any further forward or. You would, I would sigh and I was like, oh, or I'd get a letter off the solicitor and it was like, right, we're going to have a phone call. And it just, it just took a long, long time. You know, like take eight years, take eight and a half years or whatever out of your life. It's a long time. Bringing up Polly. I can't even remember our first tooth. I can't remember our first smile. I can't really I mean, I know she did it, but I can't put a date on it or a time or just like just things like that because I was so focused on sorting all this shit out that I had nothing else going on in my life. That was just it. Honest question. Well, honest answer. Were you a good mom or did you just do what it? took to carry on to keep on keeping on i think i was a good mum. yeah i mean yeah i brought her up it was hard work and but i had a good family i still have a good family me mom and me stepdad and me sister and brother-in-law they were a massive massive help being back in the northeast i mean you couldn't have had that in blackpool um, no, no. That's in the northeast DNA. Yeah. So, so, like, I had a really, I had a lot of help from my family. Massive, massive help. Do you and Holly ever exchange memories of her first ten years? It's such a a weird conversation to bring up, but do you ever have a moment where you go? So, in the years when you're litigating and you're stressed and all of that, and you're on autopilot, do you do you ever say to Holly, "Do you remember those days?" No, because Holly did have quite a normal life. You know, I took her on on holiday. I've took her abroad. I, I've took her all over. I still, did try to have not well normal. I'm not really sure what you call normal life, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> My family took her abroad. I went abroad a lot with my family. I made extra effort at Christmas and birthdays. And I, do, I don't think Holly, like, actually realises, like, what was going on. She, she doesn't. As we get older, of course, we learn more and we evaluate better. But now, 
she will probably understand the fight that you pursued for justice and she will probably reflect that she had the best life possible to her in that period so kudos to you a moment ago you said you've learned a lot we all say that when we get to our age but mm-hmm. i suppose we learn a lot more through pain than through joy and never mind financial compensation mental compensation i don't know if if the knowledge and self-awareness that you've acquired through all of this process is in any way a comfort you're armed and dangerous for the rest of your days because of what you've been through and i mean that in a you know mentally sharp and focused kind of way yeah i'm not daft a couple of final points today at the time that you finally get the ministry of defense to accept responsibility without hearing an apology do we know what became of james's family situation you as we pointed out previously have different representatives both in terms of legal and at the time family liaison officer equivalents from the outside it would look like the set of circumstances are very similar i wonder what resistance problems diversions they also went through do you have any awareness of any bid for apology stroke compensation from james's family nothing i don't know i haven't got a clue there's a freedom of information request waiting to happen if ever i knew one referring to the article from which i've taken most of my research today 14th of november 2010 elizabeth cross for army widow who fought eight-year battle to prove that husband's death was no freak accident even that headline and headlines never do the article below justice they're often written by different people but even that headline there has a slight implication that you got an elizabeth cross because you fought and surely the two things are separate and can you just explain what the value what the elizabeth cross means so the elizabeth cross is given to members of the armed forces who've been killed in action so there's not everybody doesn't get it and then also their name is enscrolled on the arboretum in staffordshire i've never been yet I've not been yet. Michael's name's on there, so the Roll of Honour, and then you get the Elizabeth Cross. There's a a normal size one, and then there's a smaller one. It has his name and his rank and his number engraved on the back, and it's from Her Majesty the Queen, the late Queen. And you get a scroll, a framed scroll, and it's signed by her. But you only get it if they're killed in action, so... Yeah. See, I mean, that's very interesting because words can be very important and very deceptive, but would you describe Michael as being killed in action in what we understand that normally to be? I think they mean it can be like 
it's short for KIA, but it's killed in action. It means that they were working anyway, killed they were killed in the army, in the for in the forces while at work. And the Queen standing just gets better over time and we look at how she carried herself especially through covid i believe that when the queen spoke to people or wrote to people she didn't just rubber stamp it i believe she asked and took an interest i think the monarchy's a ridiculous concept but i'm looking at a person there and though you wouldn't have had contact with her, I think she, in that moment, valued Michael as a person, correctly so. I think you should take pride in that. I'm reading here that the ceremony at South Shields Town Hall is tainted by the MOD's initial insistence that she could only invite eight people. Is that correct? Yeah, but I ignored that and did it my way. And allowed 50 guests. <laughs> I had more than that, I think. Quite a few people, actually. Yeah. I hope there's a one-word answer. Why the Ministry of Defence would insist that you are only allowed to invite eight people to an event that you are hosting and paying for. Got no idea. Is there correspondence about that? Or it's, it's crackers. It was delayed a few times. This Lord oh. Lieutenant couldn't make it, and so it was cancelled a few times. Anyway, the dates kept changing. Well, there's a theme. Anyway. Story of my life. The Ministry of Defence have seen you as an embarrassment, but you have exposed how embarrassing they are. When you mm. receive that medal, how do you feel? Do you want the truth? Yeah. I didn't. Re I didn't really care. I didn't care. I wasn't bothered wasn't for me, it was for Holly. I did it for Holly for the presentation. And a lot of Michael's friends came in uniform, etc. Um I wasn't bothered. Did you see it as further tokenism so many years after? Why could they have not awarded that in two thousand and two? Wasn't out then. Oh. They didn't bring it out. I don't think they brought the Elizabeth Cross out till later. I was actually one of the later ones to receive mine. Must have had to go at the back, the back of the queue. But it was like the Golden Jubilee Medal. They said I wasn't allowed that for Michael because he was killed. I think it was twenty days after the cutoff date or something for it to be presented for somebody to get it. Twenty days. So I fought and fought. I fought for quite a few years and then. They finally gave me one. In fact, they sent me two. And so I got that one as well. Where are those medals now? What have you done with them? They're in the loft. The Elizabeth Cross, it's in my house. I'm not going to tell you where it is. <laughs> the others are in my loft. They're in a big, big box that I have all Michael's belongings in. I mean, some people wear them on Remembrance Day. They have them mounted into smaller ones. And I, I just, I haven't bothered. I think I've wore the Elizabeth Cross. Mm, twice. I think the last time I wore it was about, I don't know, eight years ago when I went to the Royal Albert Hall to do the Families of the Fallen Walk. I know I wore it then. I don't think I've wore it since. I don't, I don't wear it. Somebody did ask us in it. I think I was wearing it one remembrance. I had it on my coat. Somebody asked me if it was, oh, what do you call that? Duke of Edinburgh Award. That they give to school kids. Yeah. And I just went, nope. 
He's like, oh, wow. right, okay. I mean, only people who know will know what it is. You know, like forces or ex-forces or somebody in the know will know. There's not many people that would know what it is if you're wearing it. Or they maybe ask what it is. But it's definitely not a Duke of Edinburgh award. And, you know, I think that's quite special because whilst we're doing this to make people aware, I think part of the dignity and humility of being a British soldier is, you know, we'll get on with the job. If somebody is wearing a medal at a parade, unless they're an imposter, and I have seen that, by the way, recently of someone Mm -hmm. at a presentation, I think if you are a respectful human being and with self-awareness, you will enter a world of incredible stories and courage and patriotism. You know, here's a line for you, Julie. You got that medal after you went meddling. Mm. And on that note, I think we have one episode to go, and that will be everything else. Next time on Truth of Lies. I've told the truth and... And I've told exactly what happened and how it was. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com. Truth of Lies is a horny media and publishing production.